Well, certainly great to be with you again. I've been here a couple of times now since um, we've developed a partnership with Richmond Anglican over the years. And uh, I appreciate you guys inviting me back. Um, and it's always good to come and talk about Indigenous ministry. One of the first things that I did uh, in starting with BCA was to develop a reconciliation action plan. And the reconciliation action plan outlined how BCA was going to work in the Indigenous space. And in there, we've got a, we've got a clear and concise um, uh, statement about what reconciliation is. And I've always believed that reconciliation uh, in this country consists of two things. There's a secular reconciliation, and then there's biblical reconciliation. Secular reconciliation says, if you do something for me and I do something for you, we can have a relationship. Biblical reconciliation, and this is the one that should occupy our thinking, is it's not what you do for me or what I do for you that makes us one. It's what Christ has done for both of us. And so therefore, it's a positional truth. It's something that we uh, obtain when we come to faith uh, in Christ. And the other thing I'd say about reconciliation, it does not, doesn't always mean unity. And that's something that we've got to work towards. The uh, disciples were certainly unified, or certainly reconciled, but they were always fighting. Hey, who's going to be at your right hand when you come into your kingdom? And so we need to acknowledge that. But we, as God's people, are one. And that places a bigger demand on our responsibility to one another, does it not? It certainly does, because whether or not you like it, this big black man up the front here is your brother. <laughs> and so you can pick and choose your friend, but you can't pick and choose family, folks. And so we need to acknowledge that. The other thing that's in the Reconciliation Action Plan is we wanted to come up with something, I wanted to write something that actually reflects a, uh, a respect for country, but also for God. And there's a lot of uh, acknowledgements of country and welcomes to country that have been uh, shown around these days and read out. And I thought a lot of this stuff's got the starting point wrong. And we've come up with what we believe is something that churches can use if they want to use it in this space, something that's biblically faithful um, and that's not threatening. And I want to show you what that looks like. It's going to be up on your screen. Is it there? There you go. Um, I'm going to turn around because I can't see that from up there. I'm... Let me see if I put my glasses on whether or not I can see it from, <laughs> from out here. That's certainly better. I'll have a go. Or I can turn around and you won't be able to hear it. But there it is there. And it says, We acknowledge the triune God, the creator of heaven and earth, and his ownership of all things. And that's biblical, is it not? Too right it is. And it goes on to say, We recognise that he gave stewardship of these lands upon which we meet to the First Nations people of this country. That's biblical, is it not? Yeah. Check the passage out. And, we, and look how we've written it. We've removed the word ownership and placed in there stewardship because no one owns anything and all these guys that buy up your houses and stuff, um, you know, it doesn't belong to you anyhow, it belongs, belongs to God. You only give them stewardship of it. Um, in his sovereignty, he's allowed other people groups to migrate to these shores. We acknowledge the, the cultures of our First Nations people and are thankful for the community that we share together now. We pay our respects to, peop to the peoples of the Aurora Nation and their elders, both past, present and emerging. And so we thought that that is something that, some, that people would be happy to use within the life of the church. The starting point is right, God being the owner, and he gives out 
gives his responsibility of uh, stewardship to his created humanity. And I reckon uh, we've got that right. So please feel free to use it, adjust it if you need to, uh, but please don't change its theology. Yes, brother? Eora is the um, nation in which this area uh, sits. And so, um, and within a nation, you, you, also have, um, you also have clan groups. Uh, it'd be interesting to find out uh, what the clan group is for this particular area. But Durek, yeah, well, Durek of the Aurora Nation. And so, you know... <laughs> Every time I go somewhere, I'll just talk about the nation and not the clan group if I don't know who they are. <laughs> that way I'm, I'm, I'm on safe, safe ground. Um, but uh, Cathy and I have been rolling out some cultural awareness stuff where we answer a lot of these questions. And uh, Rick, we'd be happy to come and do that with some of your staff if you're up for it at some stage. Friends, as we turn in our Bibles to uh, this passage of Scripture in 1 Samuel, what tends to happen as we're looking at Old Testament stuff, we tend to lose... Uh, the big picture stuff, and, and it's quite easy to do with this particular passage of scripture, or any passage of scripture, where it involves a narrative of storyline. And we've got to remember in the back of our mind that when we read scripture, we need to think about, well, what's God's big picture in this space? And as I was reading it, my mind went back to Genesis chapter 12, or even further than that, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God said that he was going to fix the problem of sin. And from Genesis 3.15, we see in Genesis chapter 12 that God sets aside a family for himself, and that is Abraham's family. He called Abraham to himself, and he says to Abraham, it's through your offspring that all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so from that time on, as you read through the biblical narrative, it's stories about how God is doing that, how he's going to bless the nations of the world. And we see that this is a part of that bigger narrative. And we need to acknowledge that God is doing something here. Now, if you read um, the genealogies in, in the Gospels, especially Matthew's one, you'll see that there's, a, there's a David is in that genealogy. And you can actually trace by looking at those names the storyline throughout the Old Testament. So as we come to our passage of Scripture today, we find that God is preserving his seed through which the Messiah would come. Remembering after judges ruled the land, the people of Israel looked around and saw all the other nations of, uh, around them, and they had kings, and they too wanted to be like the other nations and have kings. Samuel was the last judge and served his people as a prophet during this period. Samuel, Samuel led the children of Israel for 40 years. He was their prophet and judge. And when people asked for a king, and when he inquired of the Lord as to what he should do, God told Samuel that he should give them what they had asked for. Note why they asked for a king. Now, we're going back a little bit. I can see these guys saying, well, where's this in, the, in our text? Uh, but hopefully I'll be able to show you some of that. 
there were three reasons, I believe, that he asked for a king. Firstly, Samuel was getting old in years. Secondly, his children did not walk in his ways. And thirdly, they wanted to be like every other nation around about them. So when the children of Israel asked for a king, God told Samuel to tell the people what a king would do to them. He also reminded Samuel that the people were not rejecting him and his leadership, but they were, in fact, rejecting God's leadership. Sometimes we ask for something and we need to be careful what we ask for. Here they were in a position where they had a prophet and a judge ruling over them, while the rest of the nations around about them had a king. And they wanted to be like other nations. My friends, we here in Australia are so heavily influenced by what happens outside of this country. Hence the reason we have things coming into the country in regards to morals and so forth and so on. And we are being persuaded by influences outside. And I believe that our country is in dire, in a dire situation. Even after a warning, they pressed ahead and persisted in asking for a king. Note 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 19. So you can turn your Bibles to this. After he had told them what a king would do to them, in verse 19 says, So God said to Samuel, give them a king. And so then God raised up Saul. Note how Samuel described young Saul in verse 2 of chapter 9. Kish had a son named Saul, a handsome, a young man, as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was head taller than everyone else. A handsome looking young man with plenty of energy, a big guy. And God says to Samuel, you take him and you make him king over the people. The other thing that we noticed about Saul was that he had servants. He must have been relatively wealthy as well. In chapter 10 of verse Samuel, we see that Samuel anoints Saul as king, just as God commanded. We note that after Samuel anoints Saul as king, he gave him instructions to do a number of things, which Saul did. And we read in verse 6 of chapter 10, that the Spirit of the Lord come on Saul in a mighty way and that he would prophesy. Everything that Samuel said to Saul, Saul did. And verse 7 of chapter 10 says, Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Interesting. But note what happens when Saul becomes king. For a period when things were going well, people were supportive of Saul's leadership. He was the one that was going in and fighting their battles and giving them victory over their enemies and over their nations around about them. And when he starts out, he was a humble guy. Verse 921, Saul answered, But I am not a Benja uh, am I not a Benjamite? from the smallest tribe of Israel, and is not my clan the least of all clans of the tribe of Benjamin? 
So he was a humble guy. He started out as a humble guy. Note also at his inauguration in 1 Samuel chapter 10, Samuel had summoned the people of Israel to Mizpah. <coughs> and when it was time for the inauguration to take place, they couldn't find Saul. Where was he? He was hiding. Yeah, you guys probably covered all this anyhow with Rick. But anyhow, there's nothing wrong with going over it again. He was hiding. It's not long before Saul becomes proud and conceited. And you will note that he starts out with Samuel, Samuel's support, but it's not long before that support fades. He begins to do things independent of Samuel the prophet. In chapter 13, we read that Saul was 30 years old when he became king of Israel. And as king, he ruled for 42 years. During this time, he went about fighting and delivering Israel from the hands of their enemy. And while ever he sought the direction of God, God gave him success. It is when he begins to take matters into his own hands that things begin to go wrong. Hey, isn't that typical of us? When we take matters into our own hands and begin to live out uh, our lives in accordance to things that are happening around about us, we get ourselves in trouble. But when we read our Bibles and we take biblical principles and we apply it to our lives, then we're going to be on rocky ground. We're going to be, you know, we're going to have good foundations and God will bless his word in us. Saul began to do things according to what he wanted to do and not according to what God wanted to do. On one occasion, he went to war and God gave him success. When he returned and wanted to give thanks and worship God and offer up sacrifices, Samuel was a little slow in getting to the high place. And what happens is that Saul assumed the responsibility of a priest and offered those sacrifices. And that's where we read that text where he says to, to uh, sacrifice, to, to obey is better than sacrifice, to hearken than the fat of rams. Obedience is what God requires of his people. When Samuel arrives, he is mortified that Saul sacrificed meat on the altar. God removes Saul from, uh, God removes from Saul his favour. And David is eventually enthroned as king. In latter parts of Samuel's narrative, we see in chapter 17 that David kills the Philistine champion, Goliath. He begins to have more success in war than Saul. This is pointed out to Saul when he returns from war in verse 6 of chapter 18. And this is where Saul's uh, issue and David's issue begins to blossom. In chapter 18, we read these words. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful song and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. At this, Saul becomes angry and then sets out to kill David. Friends, jealousy is a terrible thing, is it not? Too right, it's terrible. 
Um, and we've all experienced it one time or another in our life. Well, I certainly have. Um, at one time or another in our lives. He becomes very, he becomes increasingly jealous of David and seeks to put him to death. That, my friend, is where we take up our passage of scripture this morning. Now, verse 6 begins with the words, Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered. Saul had been looking for David in order to kill him. His jealousy became paranoia. That's what happens. And that's what can happen. When jealousy sets in, we become paranoid about things. We think that everything is against us and everyone is wanting to uh, do the wrong thing by us. He thinks that David is out to destroy him, so he seeks him out. David develops a brotherly relationship with Saul's son, Jonathan. And note verse 1 of chapter 20. Then David fled from Naoth to Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, what have I done? This is David pleading for help, trying to understand why Jonathan's father wants to kill him. What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to kill me? Never, Jonathan replied. You are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without letting me know. It is not so. Your father knows very well that I have found favour in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. My friends, David here in 1 Samuel chapter 22 was in fear of his life. And so when we get to Genesis chapter, uh, sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 21, we see David is still on the run from Saul. He goes to Nob, a place where the priests lived. Some 85 of them, could have even been more. And he goes there in fear of his life. Ahimelech asks David, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? Obviously, Ahimelech knew what was going on and that Saul was out to put him to death. Why is no one with you? Ahimelech must have heard about what Saul was going to do. David was hungry and asked Ahimelech for some bread. He had no bread, only the, only the consecrated bread. And he gave David that to eat. As David seek. Ahimelech's help. And as he goes to Ahimelech, one of Saul's men were there, a guy by the name of Dohag, who was actually the chief um, supervisor of uh, Saul's shepherds. He saw what was going on. And when, he get to, when you get to chapter 22 and verse 6, we read these words. Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered and Saul was seated, spear in hand, under the tamarisk tree on the hill of Gibeah, with all his official standing at his side. He said to them, listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give you all the fields and vineyards? <coughs> will he make you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? 
And so here he is now trying to prepare himself with David. I've given you responsibility. I'm I'm giving you stuff. Will David do that? In hoping to get his, uh, his soldiers on side. And then he goes on to say, is that why you all conspire against me? You see, folks, jealousy has now resulted in paranoia. Now results in paranoia. He has become very narcissistic. And his focus is not on the children of Israel, nor on God's will for the people, but on himself and what he wants to do. Note what he says. You are all concerned with the son of Jesse. And not, one of, and not one of you tells me that my son makes covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me, he says, or tells me that my son has incited me, servant, uh, my servant, to lie in wait for me as he does today. My friends, jealousy is a terrible, terrible thing. It can cause persons to be narcissistic and paranoia. And we need to be guarding against that in our own lives. You know, as you continue to read the story, you find that Saul commands his, his soldiers to kill Ahimelech and the priest. And so what happened is they wouldn't do it. They said, well, we're not going to do that. And so what, is, what does he do? He, he, he uh, commands Doheg to do it. And I can understand uh, why he has that name, because Doheg means full of fear. And so they go, he goes down to Nob. He puts 85 priests to the sword. And not only does he kill the priest, but he kills every other man, woman and child in Nob, as well as their livestock. My friends, he was an evil, evil man. And he did it because Saul, in his jealousy, wanted David dead. And so when Saul heard that Ahimelech was helping David, he had put them to death. It's interesting that uh, Doag wasn't commanded to go and kill all the priests, nor all the people. But that's what he did. He did exactly that. Now, friends, what do we get out of this reading this morning? When Saul began his rule, he was a humble guy. His focus was on God's plan and purpose. He wanted to do God's will, hence the reason he had Samuel go everywhere with him. But as he became conceited and proud, God's favour waned and no longer would Samuel assist him in what it was that he was wanting to do. And the, the story is that eventually David is brought to the throne 
And so, friends, we need to be careful that in our walk, we read our Bibles, we apply Scripture to our lives for godly living, and we understand that we live because of God's wonderful providence for us as people and that he wants us to live the way that's outlined in his word. So let me encourage us to do that this week. Let me pray and then I'm going to hand it back to Rick. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we serve the King of kings and Lord of lords. There is nothing that we can do that pleases you more than not only reading your word, not only understanding what your word says to us, but, Father, applying it to our lives. To obey is better than sacrifice. To hearken than the fat of rams. Father, we confess this morning that we're not always... And we don't always do that. And we ask, Lord, and we seek your forgiveness when we fall short of what it is that you've called us to do. And, Father, we're so thankful today that our relationship with you, our salvation is not dependent on living out those principles. But, Father, our relationship with you is. And so, Father, we pray, Lord, that you'll help us to have a relationship that you want in order that we might live for you and have success in every area of our lives. We ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.